from the Heidelberg Catechism. We read together, Lord's Day 30. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us first that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And this is where he wants to be worshipped. The Mass teaches first that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine and there is to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Who are to come to the table of the Lord? those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them, and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment on themselves. Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession of life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, for then the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and of his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the past weeks, we've dealt extensively with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, how through it we may share in communion with Christ and one another, how we may remember our Lord's death as the only ground of our salvation, and so be strengthened in our faith through the celebration of this feast. Today, our focus shifts the basic question we want to answer this afternoon is, who are to come to the table of the Lord? When I put this question to our youth, they answer, those who have made public profession of their faith. And indeed, they are right. It is through public profession of faith that our youth gain admittance to the Lord's table. For through our public profession of faith, we commit our lives to God and to his service. We acknowledge our need for God's grace and confess Christ as our Savior. We promise to love the Lord and serve him, to forsake the world and crucify our old nature. But now another question arises. May all those who have professed their faith attend the Lord's Supper? When I ask this question to the youth, I often get puzzled looks. Our tendency is to think, yes, those who have professed their faith may attend the Lord's Supper. But on some further questioning, it becomes clear that not every professing member may always attend 
the Lord's Supper. Not if he or she is living in sin, living his or her life contrary to the commandments of God. And here, beloved, is where it gets hard. We all sin. We daily transgress God's holy commandments. So may we attend? Or should we perhaps stay away? Some in our midst struggle with a negative self-concept. We see ourselves as unworthy, undeserving, and find it a real struggle to attend the Lord's Supper, even when we're living a life of faith and gratitude before God. Others among us tend to think too highly of themselves. We can so easily be blind to our own sins, or perhaps we turn a blind eye to them. Even though we may live in blatant sin against God and his word, we may feel justified in attending the Lord's Supper. Often in our churches, the focus is on the consistory withholding those living in sin from the Lord's Supper. And indeed, beloved, there are times when that is necessary. As shepherds of the flock, elders do have supervision over the lives of the members of the congregation. But that, beloved, is only a final safeguard. The first and the most important guard to ensuring that we do not defile the Lord's table is our own self-examination. We're not always clear about how to do that, about when we should and when we should not be attending the Lord's Supper. I summarize the Word of God for you this afternoon under the following theme. Who are to come to the table of the Lord? Those who truly grieve over their sins, those who seek forgiveness for their sins in Christ, those who continue to fight against their sin by the power of the Spirit. So when should we and when shouldn't we partake of the Lord's Supper? If we've blasphemed the name of the Lord since the last celebration of the Lord's Supper, should we go? Should we go if we've fudged our tax return? What if we've had sexual contact with someone not our husband or wife? What if we're involved in a relationship breakdown and anger resides in our heart? What if we've recently gotten drunk? What if we continue to indulge in an addiction like alcohol, drugs, pornography, or the like? These are hard questions, and answering them is not always easy. Yet the Old Testament provides us some direction in the distinctions it makes between various types of sin. We read this afternoon from Numbers 15 about what's called unintentional sins, which are contrasted with sinning with a high hand or 
sinning defiantly. Having a clear understanding of what the Lord means by these things will help us to answer the question about who is allowed to attend the Lord's Supper. Up front, it's necessary to clear up some misunderstandings about the so-called unintentional sins. This term is used repeatedly in Leviticus 4 and 5, where Moses specifies the offerings that were required by people who had sinned unintentionally. We need to understand that the sins referred to are sins for which atonement could be made. It was for such sins that the Israelites could offer burnt offerings and sin offerings and so be restored in the right relationship with the Lord. In our Bibles, this term is often translated unintentionally. Some Bibles translate unwittingly or inadvertently or without intending to. But these translations are not the best. The Hebrew word means to wander, to go astray, to err. It's used in Deuteronomy 27, verse 18. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. It's used in Ezekiel 34, verse 6, where God speaks of his sheep wandering over all the mountains and on every high hill. It's used for swerving, staggering, or stumbling because someone's drunk. From the root meaning of wandering or swerving comes the sense of erring, of going astray morally. Whether such erring was intentional or not is not expressed by the verb itself, but it's only indicated by the context. At times, a person's erring, going astray, or wandering is unintentional. Leviticus 4.13 speaks of the community being unaware of the sin that they committed. And verse 14 speaks of them becoming aware. Similarly, in the case of a manslayer, the action of killing is not done with intent, but accidentally or unintentionally. At other times when this word is used, the sins mentioned cannot be categorized as being unintentional. For example, Leviticus 5 gives the examples of a person not speaking up when called to testify, or of a person uttering a rash oath, or of a person offering a defective sacrifice. Thus, the Hebrew word, often translated unintentionally, should be translated to wander or to go astray. Such wandering can be attributed to the weaknesses, to the frailty of our human flesh. At times we wander because it's not really clear to us that what we're doing is wrong. At times we stray due to the weakness of our sinful flesh. Leviticus 4 and 5 and Numbers 15 make it clear that sacrifices could be offered and atonement made for sins of weakness of various kinds. Atonement could be made for sins done from haste, without thought, or in an unpremeditated way. Atonement could also be made for sins done with purpose and premeditation. 
but resulting from the weakness of the spirit in its struggle with the flesh. Numbers 15 makes it clear that there is only one type of sin for which there was no forgiveness. That was for sins done with a high hand. To sin with a high hand means to sin defiantly. Here the sin is done in act of rebellion against God. Moses says in Numbers 15 verses 30 and 31 that a person who sinned in this way shall be cut off from among the people because he has despised the word of the Lord and broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. The teaching that forgiveness is possible both for unintentional sins as well as sins resulting from the weakness of our sinful flesh is confirmed in the New Testament. Hebrews 5 verses 2 and 3 makes mention of how the high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. (coughs) We see from this that forgiveness is possible, both for sins committed unknowingly and for sins committed due to the wandering or straying from God's commands. The love of the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. God deals patiently with us, even when we fall into sin. He knows that we are dust. God knows our sinful nature. It's why he sent Christ to die for us as a sin offering. Through Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. By his spirit, we are cleansed of our pollution, of our defilement. In grace, God restores us that we may live in covenant fellowship with him. Yet woe to those who despise God's grace. In Hebrews 10, verses 26 and 27, the writer of Hebrews gives us a stern warning. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. God's wrath will be poured out on those who willfully reject his word. If we reject Christ's sacrifice of his own blood and insult the spirit of grace, God's eternal punishment will be poured out on us. Just like in the old covenant, a willful rejection of God results in being cut off from him and his people forevermore. From this we see that it is not the nature of a specific sin itself that determines whether or not we should attend the Lord's Supper. It's not that if you blaspheme you may not attend, that you may attend, but that if you commit adultery you may not. What counts 
is the manner in which the sin was committed and our general attitude towards that sin. Was the sin done in ignorance? Was it done in weakness? In frailty of the flesh? Or was it done with a high hand, willfully, defiantly, in rebellion against God? There's a difference between a young couple in love falling into sin and a married man preying on weak women to indulge his sinful lusts. There's a difference between someone earnestly striving against his addiction but falling at a certain point in time and someone who indulges him or herself because they can't be bothered to fight anymore. Beloved, we need to be honest with ourselves to see where we're truly at. The nature of our sin is not what determines who may come and who should refrain from partaking in the Lord's Supper. The real question is, where is your heart? You may have committed grievous sins against the Lord, but what's your heart's response to that? Are you truly sorry for your sin? Have you repented from it? Does that show in any way? Have you restored what you have taken? Have you acknowledged guilt and repented before the one whom you have offended against? Have you done what you can to repair broken relationships caused by your sin? Do you hate your sin and flee from it? Or is this sin still part of your life? Do you just continue on in the way of sin? Beloved, examine yourselves before you partake in the supper of our Lord. The first responsibility for partaking of the bread and wine or abstaining from it lies with you. I want to be clear. On the one hand, Christ commands you to come. He commanded his church to remember his death until he appears again on the clouds of heaven. Yet on the other hand, through his apostles, our Lord has issued a strong warning that we're not to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. Hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment on themselves. If we share in the supper of our Lord while living in sinful disobedience, we bring God's curse on ourselves. Those who become aware of sin in their lives need to humble themselves before God. We need to confess our sins by name before our Father in heaven. To grieve with heartfelt sorrow, we have offended Him by our sins. God needs to know that we hate our sin, that we struggle against it, that we flee from it, that instead of finding joy and delight in our sins, we find our life in Christ that we seek our satisfaction in him 
alone. We deal with that in our second point. And we see that those who seek forgiveness for their sins in Christ may come to the table of the Lord. In the Old Covenant, God's people were instructed to bring sacrifices to atone for their sins. They offered up sin offerings and guilt offerings. All these sacrifices pointed forward to Christ, who would serve as the only atoning sacrifice. In Hebrews 10, verses 11 and 12, a beautiful contrast is made between the sin offerings of the Old Covenant and the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, And every priest stands daily. Yet the Lord Jesus most holy place, heaven itself, he sat down at the Father's right hand. Christ has paid the price for all our sins. He has made atonement for them with the sacrifice of his body and blood on the cross. The fact that God accepted Christ into heaven shows he's pleased with Christ's sacrifice for our sins. In Hebrews 10, the author draws a natural conclusion from that. He says in chapter 10, verse 19, that we may have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus we may approach God in prayer. And when we as believers die, we'll even be taken up to be with God in heaven. Because Christ, our mediator, has opened the way. The author of Hebrews encourages us in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Because Christ has served as our sin offering, the way has been opened for us to live with God in covenant fellowship. To know whether we can attend the Lord's Supper, we need to consider if we're living in communion with God. Or are there sins that block the way? If so, we need to seek forgiveness for our sins in Christ. We all sin daily, sometimes through ignorance, sometimes through weakness, sometimes in rebellion against God. The question, beloved, is this What do you do with your sins? Do you just pray a general prayer at the end of the day? The Lord, forgive me for all my sins, for they were many? Or do you truly humble yourself before God? Confessing your sins by name, grieving over them, seeking repentance in the blood of Christ? The basic question is, where do we seek our life? What and who do we make number one in our lives? Who or what will be our first love? When we make public profession of our faith, we commit ourselves to love Christ above all. That means forsaking the world. It means crucifying your sinful flesh. Beloved, for us, that's hard to do. In our own strength, we cannot do it. It's only possible through faith. A faith 
worked in our hearts by the Spirit of God. You see, beloved, by nature we love this world and what this world has to offer. Often we love sin because sin has an immediate payoff. Partaking in sin gratifies the flesh. It makes us feel good. If that wasn't the case, then Satan's temptations wouldn't hold any power. That's why the Bible offers the warnings it does. Think of the repeated exhortations by the Apostle Paul. Not to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Think of what the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We need to learn to live our lives from an eternal perspective. This world is not and will never be the be-all and the end of life. Nothing that this world has to offer will provide you with lasting satisfaction. The writer of Hebrews speaks about the fleeting pleasures of sin. Pleasures that make you feel good for a little while, but they do not last. With sin, the law of diminishing returns always applies. As time progresses, you get less and less satisfaction from a sinful way of life. Sin carries with it a high cost. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. Sin alienates us from God. If we pursue a sinful way of life, in the end we cut ourselves off from our only Savior. But to know Christ to make him our treasure, it provides a lasting reward. If Christ is our joy and our delight, it gives true satisfaction in life. For in Christ there is life, there is comfort, there is peace. Beloved, are you willing? Give up all things for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus as your Savior? Are you willing with Paul to consider all things as loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord? Christ taught us, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He calls us to find our life in Him. If we find our life in Christ, then it is natural to partake in the Lord's Supper. And then it will truly benefit us. 
For by eating of the bread and drinking of the wine, we're reminded and assured that Christ's body was offered and his blood shed for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. Then the Lord's Supper also causes us to focus on Christ's once-for-all sacrifice as the only ground for our salvation. Then the Spirit uses the sacrament to strengthen and nourish our faith. Brings us to our final point, and it will see that those who continue to fight against their sins by the power of the Spirit may partake in the Lord's Supper. In our lives, we are engaged in spiritual warfare, a battle against our sworn enemies, the devil, this world, and our own sinful flesh. While we live and breathe, this battle will go on. No one here on this earth can ever say, I've arrived. We need to run with endurance. The race marked out for us. We need to fight the good fight of the faith. To put on the whole armor of God. That we may take our stand against the devil's schemes. Beloved, are you running the race? Are you fighting the good fight of the faith? Or have you given up? In each of our lives, there are certain temptations that attract us, certain sins that easily enslave us. It's not enough to just seek forgiveness for those sins each time we fall into them. If we're truly sorry for our sins and we grieve over them, then we'll also fight against them. Then we pray for God to equip us with his word and spirit, that we may stand strong in our battle against sin and the devil. In our Bible reading from Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews asks his readers to recall the former days. He reflects on the fact that when they first came to faith, they endured a hard struggle with sufferings. They were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. They joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. They had eyes of faith. They could see God was with them and that he would help them. The author of Hebrews tells them, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. He tells them that they need to endure so that after they've done the will of God, they would receive what he had promised. God says, my righteous ones shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Beloved, let us not be those who draw back, who are destroyed. In our struggle against sin, let us not give up our hope and our confidence in the Lord. By His Spirit, He can and He will help us in our fight against sin. Jesus Christ has given us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper for the strengthening of our faith. He earnestly desires to share in communion with us at His Supper. But only if He lives in us and we in Him. 
only if in the rest of our lives we also live in close fellowship with Him. Sin is a daily reality in each of our lives. And if we openly confess our sins, if we seek forgiveness in Christ, if we earnestly fight against them by the power of the Spirit, then we may partake in the Lord's Supper. Those with broken and contrite hearts who seek their life in Christ and His grace may share in the Supper of our Lord. For, beloved, we do not come to the Lord's table to make a statement about how good we are. We come as needy, sinful people, earnestly desiring to share in Christ's righteousness and life. We may come assured that no sin or weakness that remains in us against our will can prevent us from being received by God in grace. May the celebration of the Lord's Supper and also nourish and strengthen our faith so that we may hold fast our confidence in Christ our Savior with full assurance of faith so that we may fight the good fight of the faith until we inherit the crown of righteousness. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing from Psalm 26, stanzas 1, 4, 6, and 7. <laughs> 